0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: I don't want no volunteers. I don't want no mates. There's too many captains on this island. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing.
1: No award money for our undertaking this week, Adam. A 45th anniversary sacred cow review of Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Sadly no. Robert Shaw's quint in that clip
2: from the Spielberg Classic, along with that review, will power rank the five decades of
1: Spielberg's filmography. You know, that sounds like a big show. Don't do it. I mean, I'm just thinking we we probably need a bigger Don't do it. That and more is ahead on film spotting.
2: Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, we've done our share of top fives over the years, 500 or so, but when it comes to power rankings, we are mere novices. We did this for the first time two years ago, almost to the day. We power ranked the Chrises, one of the (laughs) momentous moments in the history of Film Spotting, right? Episode 686. Oh, surely one of our more significant shows. (laughs) And this week, we're going to power rank the five decades of Steven Spielberg's career, maybe someday we'll power rank our power rankings. It might come to that. I think we will. (laughs) So little preview,
1: was this tougher than you thought? You know, there's two ways to go about this. I think initially we both thought, yeah, we'll just kind of look at the filmography and and get on the mic and kind of riff where we think things are, or you sit down and chart things. Um, Mm -hmm. You move them around. You have tiers, which of course is what I think we both ended up doing. So yeah, it was a little bit more of a project than I anticipated, but a rewarding one. Yeah. I'm glad I put in the work on it because I knew it was going to be hard enough
2: deciding which decade to put first and which would slot right behind it. I didn't think it would be so hard with the other decades actually. Mm -hmm. And then after spending a good deal of time on it, I actually ended up flipping two decades around that I thought were set in stone. So I'm excited to get to that. And we'll share listeners' power rankings of the Spielberg decades as well. We have their poll results a bit later. First, though,
1: the beaches are open. So let's talk Jaws.
0: There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic it lives to kill a mindless eating machine it will attack and devour anything it is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws
2: Sometimes, probably often, we have a convenient hook for one of these setups that doesn't really reflect the whole substance of our conversation about a movie, but a convenient hook is a convenient hook. Which is all to say, for those of you who aren't particularly interested in hearing a discussion of Jaws framed around our current administration, just give us a little wiggle room here. I'm pretty confident we're both more excited to talk about Steven Spielberg's camera tricks than his politics. But, it's a little eerie how prescient his game-changing 1975 blockbuster is 45 years later. The movie that promised will never go in the water again also presents an all-too-dangerously familiar type of huckster politician during a crisis who fails to heed the warnings of scientists, dramatically downplays and dismisses the potential loss of life, can't wait to pat himself and his cronies on the back, loves to preen for a TV camera, and who demands those beaches be open— because business demands they be open. Yep, sorry, even the scary shark movie is actually about coronavirus. And I'm far from the only one who has noticed. My Twitter timeline has jumped the snark over the past couple of months, including this from Frank Rich just a few nights ago, commenting on a New York Times breaking news tweet that read, Vice President Mike Pence encouraged governors to repeat a misleading claim about coronavirus outbreaks. Rich wrote, Pence makes the Jaws mayor look like Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> mayor Vaughn is played with a pensian affable smugness by Murray Hamilton. And one line I had always kind of overlooked that struck me on this rewatch is when he's spurning the pleas of Roy Scheider's chief Martin Brody and Richard Dreyfuss's Matt Hooper to keep the beaches closed on July 4th, America's day to celebrate its independence and preeminence. And he explains... I don't think either one of you are familiar with our problems. Our problems. You see, Matt is a visitor to Amity, and the chief, well, he's an interloper. He's a cop from New York City who just moved his family to the island a year ago. Mayor Vaughn translated, Why should I take advice on what my people should do from you foreigners? Maybe he would have listened to the warnings of a police chief who was a born and bred Islander. Maybe not. But Martin's otherness sure makes him really easy to ignore. So, Josh, I'm curious, as a starting point anyway, on this viewing, was your mind still mostly blown by Jaws' remarkable craft, or, in the midst of this pandemic, starring an insatiable, predacious virus that's always lurking out of sight, was it the movie's surprising relevancy that had you jumping out of your seat.
1: Yeah, we'll get to the craft. I mean, that's the reason this movie is ultimately still so masterful these many decades later. But I'm glad you're starting here because obviously this came to mind, even if you hadn't revisited Jaws recently, as soon as, I mean, even if you we hadn't had the one-to-one correlation of beaches, people desperately wanting mm-hmm. beaches to be open, I think yeah. this would have come to mind. And you're right, it was all over Twitter. But sitting down to watch the movie again, mm-hmm. it's the details that are so one-to-one that did absolutely shock me. And I, I want to say at the start, you know, I realize that it, this is not as cut and dried on the one hand that the administration Wants things to seem, it's you know, not as cut and dried, maybe for some people. On the other hand, I don't own a small family business, you know, but my livelihood is not tied to something that is directly affected by these closings. So, I, I do get it that this is a real issue for some people, mm-hmm. yet the broad scale opening. I think that the White House has been pushing not only seems unwise, but is very much in line with what we see Amity's mayor pushing for in this movie. And, and just quotes like Murray Hamilton saying, We need summer dollars. You know, you could yep. just you basically have been hearing that for for two months now. Um, and I think there are other details worth mentioning. The Pence correlation adam is absolutely the amended autopsy report right Mm -hmm. they fudge the autopsy report to make it not look like a shark attack um (laughs) that's what's going on in the case in this recent uh case of pence um you mentioned hooper and there's this distrust of hooper i don't i didn't make the you know the the outsider immigrant connection quite as much i think that's that's really smart but i think of him as like the outside expert who's bringing scientific evidence and data, right? This this is who is immediately distrusted is the person with the facts. And that, again, is is all we're seeing from up on top right now. The eagerness for an easy solution when the the fishermen catch the first shark and right away, it's like, let's have a parade. It's over. Everybody get in the water immediately. And how about this one? This is a more subtle one that it's maybe not as easy to laugh about but the distraction from the issue at hand. I mean, how much nonsense? We're we're always putting up with nonsense coming out of the White House, mm-hmm. but how much did that amp up after COVID-19 hit? And it's very much in, in line with that conversation Hooper and Brody and the mayor have underneath the Amity sign. And it's been vandalized, right? right. And so immediately for the mayor, that's issue number one.
0: Sick vandalism. That is a deliberate mutilation of a public service message. Now, I want those little paint-happy bastards caught and hung up by their Buster Browns. That's it.
1: That's, to him, what's plaguing the island. Law and order. Law and order. Let's get that and not worry about all this other stuff. So, you know, all that said, the other revelation to me... As long as we're dumping on Trump, which I'm happy to do all day, <laughs> I don't think he's the mayor. Uh, I mentioned this when I right after I revisited it on Letterboxd because it struck me. Remember the scene where there's a scare in the water. Everyone's on the beach, and it's just chaos. Everyone is yep. rushing to get to shore. There's one guy. There's one guy who, A was dumb enough to go in the water, right? But then when things go bad, he pushes those kids off the raft and steals it and, and desperately paddles back to shore in terror. That's Trump. If you want to look for Trump in that movie and how he's behaved throughout his presidency and particularly when crisis hits, he's that dumb guy. Man, I am so willing to buy the Trumpian
2: elements to both the mayor and to that guy, which I don't think I had never really noticed before until this viewing. And it's also so perfect, right? Because this terrible thing he does, this horrible act of of prioritizing his safety over these kids is also so stupid because (laughs) wouldn't he probably move faster if he just swam instead of not only yanking the float, but trying to use the float. Yeah. How is the float going to get him to shore any quicker? He it, seems it to be having to the trouble. Panic. Yeah. yeah, it <laughs> speaks to the panic. It speaks to the selfishness. It speaks to all the things that we're, we're talking about. And yes, we definitely will geek out on the formal elements of this movie, I'm sure. But having not really devoted a lot of time to studying this movie or having discussed it in detail before on the show, I got all the Twitter jokes over the past couple of months, but... It was because, yeah, of course, I've always just kind of taken the idiot mayor aspect for granted. That was part of the story. It wasn't really some kind of statement on Spielberg's part with regard to American politics or Americans in general. But it is very hard to watch it now and separate that aspect. And even more interesting for me than all the parallels that we're touching on and you really nicely articulated. For me, what's fascinating is where the political and the personal intersect in this film, which I think fits nicely with what this movie does as a whole so very well, which is mixing the horror and those thriller adventure aspects with the personal, too. It's in getting to know these people. It's mm-hmm. having an attachment to Chief Brody and his family, that great scene at the dinner table after the slap is one of my favorites. I think I may have had it in my top five Spielberg moments. But just going off memory coming into this film, I thought of Chief Brody as this purely heroic figure and that it was the idiot mayor and the greed of the townspeople that prevent this guy, this stand up righteous man from doing his job and saving lives. And that he's almost this Cassandra like figure who unfortunately is ignored. Except when you watch closely, you realize he doesn't really put up a fight. When the Mm. medical examiner changes the police report, as you pointed out, from a shark attack to a boating accident, he doesn't actually really protest. What he does is what so many of us do. He just tries to cover his ass. The exact lines are, that's not what you told me over the phone. And when the M.E. says, I was wrong, we'll have to amend our reports. Brody says, and you'll stand by that? So in other words, as long as the medical examiner will go on the record— and say that that's the cause of death, then Chief Brody's willing to wash his hands of it, right? And when they catch the tiger shark, and they all do preemptively celebrate, he's all too eager. Like, how much attention Spielberg pays to Scheider smiling, and how willing he is to congratulate everyone, and even pose for the picture himself triumphantly, right? It's not because, like the others, he really probably wants the glory, and he wants the publicity. I think we understand that about who he is as a person. But you know what it is? It does make life so much easier, doesn't it? If the shark was caught, it makes his life so much easier. So he's immediately willing, again, like so many of us are, he's immediately willing to assume the truth of what is told to him and what seems to be shown to him rather than dig deeper and actually confront the truth. And what finally does prompt moments of reckoning for both Brody and the mayor? I think it's really... Worth pointing out that it isn't until Mrs. Kittner slaps him. Yeah. Brody doesn't show much remorse. You can tell that this is weighing on him, but he is willing to celebrate, as I said in that moment. And he doesn't reflect or really show remorse or awareness of his guilt that Alex's death could have been prevented if he hadn't been complicit in basically covering up the shark attack. And for the mayor, it's the same. It's when he says my kids were on that beach, too. So it's that it's that Hooper line that's actually the response to the line I quoted in the setup from the mayor about not wanting to hear from them. They don't understand our problems. He says, I think that I am familiar with the fact that you're going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you on the ass until it swims up and bites them on the ass. The chief is willing to look the other way. The mayor is willing to look the other way a lot of us are willing to look the other way.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about Brody. Uh, It is more complicated. You know, he does have an immediate instinct to protect, right? His instinct is to have the deputy make the beaches closed signs. But once things get complicated and political, his position shifts a little bit. And here's another resonance with, you know, COVID-19 that I'll just say I've been experiencing. How about the fact that Brody lets his kids go in the water, but they go in the pond, right yes. and so there's a negotiation there and I, I don't know about you but as as things are opening up and we're trying to follow what actual experts say is safe to do right now just not governmental bodies who have perhaps other interests yet at the same time we have teenage kids who are desperate to associate with their friends and we have some friends whose families are making some decisions some who are making other decisions we're kind of like do we let our kids go in the water like which mm-hmm. body which body mm-hmm. of water do we let our kids go into and and how are we making our own compromises so I'm glad you brought that up about Brody because it does complicate things in a way that I think is more true to life and it and it adds absolutely and maybe here's where we can get into other aspects of the film into what you' were talking about Adam is how personal this film is, not only tied to Brody's family, but really, to an extent, this community at large. And let me give you an example that'll also get us into the craft. It was Michael Phillips' number three Spielberg scene, and it is that first beach attack sequence. First of all, just the patience of the filmmaking there, watching it again, how much time is spent on building the suspense. But here's, Mm -hmm. here's what I mean about it being personal. Each potential victim in that sequence, gets a story. It's patient enough to give them a story. So we have the the boy who's begging to go back in the water. Right. That's a mini picture of a real family right there. Uh, any of yeah. us with kids know that conversation. There's also the woman floating peacefully alone. The shot is long enough to wonder: Is she just at the beach by herself? Is you know yeah. is she, what is she you know just chilling for the day? Yeah. What what's her story? Then how the about teenage couple in the horseplay? Yeah, right? the horseplay. Yep. And then how about the teen? with a dog, the dog who gets a name, Pippin, and that yep. turns out to be Alex Kittner, who is the one who obviously gets killed. So yeah. just the time spent where it's not just a shark attack on these strangers who are screaming, it's all of these people who, yes, we don't get to know intimately, but we formed, Spielberg is patient enough, uh, and the sh- shot selection is is intentional enough to allow us to form a little bit of relationship so that when the chaos strikes, it's all the more terrifying.
2: Yeah, you are so right, and the math doesn't work out, but when I heard Pippin as the dog name here, I of course thought about Roy Scheider in one of my all-time favorite films, All That Jazz, playing Bob Fosse, and Pippin was one of his seminal musicals, one of his real masterworks that he got a lot of acclaim for, but obviously this film came before, not before Pippin, but before All That Jazz. I don't think I had that. I didn't go back and look at our top five list, which you can find over at filmspotting.net. Just click on list. I don't remember my exact top five Spielberg moments, but if I was redoing it now, that sequence wouldn't be just at number three. It would probably be at number one. And let's be honest, we could do at minimum a top five moments just from this film. For sure. Right? Forget Spielberg's filmography. But I do think, certainly on this rewatch, that prelude to the Alex Kittner attack is the sequence of this film. Brody on the beach. He's watching obsessively. And I'm going to come back to why I think that part of it is actually important in a second. And we get those wipe cuts mm-hmm. on movement. The yes. residents, the residents walking in front of him almost like it's the blinking of his eye. And every time we get one of those blinks, we get closer to his face. Mm-hmm. And it does just take everything you were talking about, all that tension, all that dread is just mounting and it mounts with every single one of those little innocent cuts, those little innocent blinks. And it's all just sound, right? There's no real dialogue. There's no music at this point. It's all just sound and motion, sound and motion, which is filmmaking, right? Filmmaking at its core is sound and motion. And even then we get that shot where Spielberg employs a little trick that is a preview of another trick that's going to come, where Brody's perspective is obscured by the guy, another guy, who kind of gets a story, Josh, to Mm -hmm. your point. Yeah. The guy we all know, who's the busybody, who only cares about what the reckless hoodlums in town or whatever are doing to him, and he's really got to take a look at that, he's telling the chief, right? And his perspective is obscured by that guy in his shoulder, and we watch as... Brody does what we want him to do, lifts his eyes, lifts his head over the guy's shoulder so we can see, and then we get a diopter shot. I'm pretty sure it's a diopter shot that obscures the perspective between what Brody's seeing and in the foreground, that guy's face, and then in the water, what he's looking at, which again, it does just continue to heighten the tension. Something seems very off in that moment, and that diopter shot actually comes the second before a scream but it's a scream in the water that isn't the attack yet. So it's all just a tease still. It's the scream of those those kids who are playing in the water, the the teenagers. And all of that is what actually sets up the classic shot, the vertigo trick shot. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to think of that when you take it just on its own as a scene to analyze, and you recognize that he is zooming forward At the same time, he is pulling back. That's the technique that gives that amazing effect of fear and and awareness of what's happening when the Kintner attack actually begins as the camera focuses in on Brody. But that's exactly what it's doing. Just as the shots before it, those cuts were playing with distance and playing with perspective at once. That's what's happening here. Time and space is completely collapsing in that moment.
1: So we've both mentioned the editing in this sequence. We should probably point out Jaws edited by Verna Fields and yes. looking at her credits. This was her last credit, at least at IMDb. Hmm. But before that, edited Medium Cool, Paper Moon, American Graffiti with Spielberg here on the Sugarland Express yeah. as well. So, man, just masterful masterful work um the camera work but also the editing in this sequence and i i agree you know my pick from jaws for our top five spielberg scenes which we'll probably get to though i went on and on and on when we did that episode is show me the way to go home the comparing scars scene but i do agree in terms of craft maybe in terms of characterization that's the best scene in the film in terms of craft it's this one here that we've been talking about but you know you're in for this high level of craft from the very start of this film, and one thing I did not remember watching it again is that John Williams' score mm-hmm. is the first thing we get. Uh, yes. I think I think before even any images, we're getting yeah. that score. So how yep. supremely confident the filmmakers were, right, of of Williams' work here to do that, and then we get. The teenagers on the beach at nighttime, and I loved how the camera movement shifts here and really moves us into the terror. Because when they're on the beach hanging out, there's a tracking shot along all of them that shows us clearly we're on stable ground. It's a smooth shot, right? Mm-hmm. Before we get on the water, things are smooth. Then the two of them run to the water and the movement increases the camera picks up speed still tracks but is going faster now a little jostling and then finally when we get in the water it is when we start to have that sort of lulling effect that we'll have throughout much of the film mm-hmm. uh, and and that's just kind of a way to, to take us from from stable land to a place of instability and fear and i think you know that attack itself yeah. is scary because at first she's confused You know, there's there's we know what's happening because we're here to see Jaws, even if this is the first time we saw it. Right. But she does not doesn't understand what's happening to her. Then she gets that moment of reprieve hanging onto the buoy. Right. Then the final bite comes, pulls her under and we have stillness and silence. So all of this establishes the water as a place of danger compared to the land. And what do we get after this sequence? The first shot, Brody uneasily looking out the window of his house at the bay at yes. the water. So you know you're in the hands uh, already of someone where every shot is going to count, not a second is wasted. Even even think of that moment right there with Brody and his wife who I do want to get to, there's another shot. I don't know if it's a diopter, but he takes the phone call in their kitchen in mm-hmm. the foreground while the mother and son are attending to the the child's cut. In the background, blood, right? That's what we're getting there is more blood in the background. Again, a little kind of a, a, a setup scene for the narrative, but Spielberg is doing so much, squeezing so much efficiency and important imagery into that shot as well.
2: Yeah, there are so many moments like that. I even think about when they are finally departing with Quint, Hooper and Brody. They're heading off on the boat and we get a moment, if I remember the sequence right, where He cuts to that shot from inside Quint's little shack and the big jaws of the shark and the camera is moving forward and then we cut to outside and the camera is still moving, but now it's pulling back a little bit. He's just always playing with movement, right? Mm -hmm. In a really, really fascinating way. And all of those shots matter. I think I went with when we did that top five Spielberg moments, my cliche, and there are so many of them that are just so great and so classic from this movie to pick from. I think I went with the, the chalkboard sequence, Mm -hmm. right? The one where we get that great, one of the all-time great character introductions in cinema to Quint. But the other one that a lot of people would point to, and it's still great no matter how many times you watch it, is the Indianapolis Mm -hmm. speech. And I did notice one thing this time that was always obvious before, I just never zeroed in on it, is one little touch, one little decision with the framing I think Spielberg makes that heightens everything with that speech is that he keeps Richard Dreyfuss in the shot. We know how invested Matt Hooper is in all things sharks, right? Yeah. And, and their, their, their history, their legacy, almost, if you will. He knows that story. We know, without him even saying it, that he knows. And he does actually verbalize it, I think, at one point. But we know that he probably is familiar with all of the lore of the Indianapolis. And he's also fascinated by... And also terrorized by, to an extent, Quint. Yes. And so when Quint starts telling a story that puts him in that place and having had that experience, he's in awe. And just by keeping him in the right of the frame, visible the entire time, Dreyfus plays it perfectly, doesn't react at all, is just completely focused on... Quince words, his investment in the story that that becomes our investment. It it, it already is a reflection of our investment as viewers. But I think then we're just hanging on every word in a way that maybe we wouldn't even if it wasn't for the fact that we've got a surrogate there in the scene who is showing us how important every word is, how important this experience is. And how important the storytelling itself is the yeah. act of storytelling
1: yeah he's he's like an audience plant in a way and yep. it works it works perfectly. and I don't know if this came up when we talked about this scene on that show, but uh, I had forgotten and so I had to look it up again that this speech was not in the Peter Benchley novel so found you know just doing some some googling that uh, Spielberg credited Howard Sackler for coming up with that. Now, Sackler didn't get screenplay credit, Mm. but Spielberg mentioned that he came up with the idea and inserted it. And then John Milius apparently did some work on the speech at some point. And then Robert Shaw himself, you know, brought his own edition, Spielberg said, which you can imagine. So I think I kind of cheated and rolled the show me the way to go home scar scene right into Indianapolis. And that was my pick. But uh, a little touch I noticed this time was after they... The two are comparing their scars, so Quint and Hooper. And it's really like, you know, they're they're pretty close. Hooper's had some, some tough uh experiences there, even compared to Quint. At the end of that, Brody pulls up his shirt quietly in the corner away from them. He's not at the table, and we see he's got a scar too across his abdomen. He just looks mm-hmm. at it and pulls his shirt down. Yep. And it, it looks like a, you know, a pretty big scar. Like I I, I don't think it was just like a bike accident, but yep. still it's just like you know, the levels of manliness at play among the three of them, it's not enough for him to enter that contest. Another great character touch that I love.
0: What's that one? What? That one there, on your arm. Oh, it's well, a tattoo. I got that removed. Don't tell me.
3: Don't tell me. Mother.
0: <laughs> what is that? <laughs>
3: Tohupa, that's the USS Indianapolis.
2: <laughs> I am glad that we've mentioned all the other screenwriters who maybe had a role in this movie we haven't mentioned Carl Gottlieb yet who is the credited screenwriter on this film and I don't know the original version of this script I haven't read the Benchley novel either but in talking about whatever pointed statements it may be making about America that are still very timely and relevant now probably some credit should go to Gottlieb and his interpretation of the Benchley source material but another new thing for me watching this time Josh and this is where I was going when I was hinting at the obsessiveness of Roy's watching is I don't think that classic shot on the beach, the zoom pullback is the only Hitchcock theft in this film or the only direct homage to vertigo, even in this film, right? Because that's where it comes from, right? And maybe there are other instances in cinema history, but famously that shot in vertigo, Scotty, Jimmy Stewart, Hanging over the ledge, looking down, we get that same effect, zooming and pulling back in that disorienting sense that it gives us as viewers. Well, Brody is a lot like Scotty in Vertigo. Both are cops, both effectively are retired from being police officers. There's some little character details that we get that I'd also never paid attention to really before about what being on the beat or being on the job in New York City was like and and how different that is. And instead of heights, what's his fear? He's afraid of water. Right. It's elemental. He does not want to go near the water. So there's a perfect correlation here, actually, to Vertigo. And I do think that whether that's just Spielberg film school playfulness at work, and we can geek out about that a little bit, that fear and making that a psychological foundation for Brody is something that really gives this film a richness that maybe another filmmaker would not bring to what could have been obviously just kind of a B-movie, where the types of scares we get when the face pops out at Hooper under the water and... Maybe some of the shark attacks could have been more gruesome and bloody. We could have gotten that type of B picture here, but it's not just the craft. It's those character touches that you have pointed out. And it's also that psychological underpinning
1: that's there. Yeah. And that fear comes to fruition when he gets on the boat later, right? For the last third. It's that we understand that he's out of his element in so many ways at that point. He's almost, he's almost helpless. The only thing that doesn't, you know, I would say in terms of, you think of Jimmy Stewart being so, such an obsessive character in Vertigo, the most obsessive character in this movie is the shark. I mean, this thing For will, sure. will not give up. <laughs> and I, I love the touch of the show-off touch of the shark. At this point, I think it has three barrels harpooned to it. Should be impossible to go underwater at all. Not only does it go underwater, it goes under the boat, right? To yes. just kind of like, kind of give them a little middle <laughs> yeah, finger to there. Toy <laughs> to toy with them. To toy with them. I do want to jump back because um, I mentioned her character briefly, Brody's wife, but not the actress, Lorraine Gary, as Ellen. And I, I just, you know, I think she stands in a line of, and I don't want to give Spielberg too much credit here. He's he's a male dominant filmmaker. Absolutely. But Lorraine Gary's Ellen is in a line of fully envisioned and fully performed women characters. Again, they're sidelined um, because they never really get their full stories. But think of Karen Allen in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Think of Dee Wallace in E.T., the extraterrestrial. Terry Garr in Close Encounters. Again, y- you could reorient most of those movies perhaps around each of those women and, and they might be just as interesting, obviously, a different experiences. And it's it's sad that we haven't gotten a cinema like that alongside the cinema of men. But for the amount of screen time they have, I think they are given attention by Spielberg Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker. And I think the actors, these actresses give such great performances. Uh, Lorraine Gary here, I love how she's supportive of Brody. Like, you know, she's got his back, but she also has her own ideas. Like she pushes back on him. She has her own ideas about their family. But when it comes to, if it's going to come down to the island or or them, she's going to stand right next to him and protect the family against the island and the the mayor and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. She also has a sardonic sense of humor about that community. She she deflates their pretensions. I love the little line, like how much work does a line like this do and the delivery by Gary when she just says, want to get drunk and fool around? Mm -hmm. I mean, in a second, you have that marriage, right? Yeah, you, you, you know ha- them. You know them, and it's it's because of how she delivers it. And um, again, you mentioned the dinner family scene, just another wonderful domestic touch, which was such a strength of Spielberg's early films in particular, when it ends with Brody's son mimicking him, and mm-hmm. Brody just says to him, give us a kiss, you know? Yep. And again, another yep. line interaction delivery where this family becomes so fully formed, even though it's not really about them. This story isn't right. meant to be about them, but it still becomes so much about them because of yeah. performances like this. If
2: they weren't there, this is such a lesser film. Oh, And my everything goodness. that happens on the boat we would probably still be impressed by because of the craft of so much of it, but we would not be drawn to this film. We would not all continually, consistently come back to this film as an all-time American great if it wasn't for all of these elements we're talking about, including its timelessness. And I'm really glad you brought up Lorraine Gary because I agree with everything you said. And I also get to point out that if someone would like to, while they're listening, go to Google and type in Lorraine Gary Jaws and look at her hair and hairstyle, And see if it maybe reminds you of someone like, I don't know, Kim Novak from (laughs) Vertigo, just a little bit, that blonde hair, the way it's up. But I will also point to a character moment with her that I love that I also think is so indicative of human nature. It, It just speaks to who she is, but who we all are. And it's in that moment where after the first attack, I think after the first body is washed up on shore, he's reading all the books and he's trying to learn what he can about sharks. And he looks out. And he shouts at his kids who are out in their little boat that one Mm -hmm. of them got for his birthday, but they're just along the dock. And the mom's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're just along the dock. They're in the boat. They're fine. But then what happens? She glances down at a page in the book where a boat is being attacked by a shark. And in that moment, she then screams at the boys to come in. And Brody has no idea what's happening. And I love that because... Wouldn't we all do that very same thing? You have that initial dismissal. You go, they're fine. What are we worried about? But the moment, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the moment it becomes visual, the moment it becomes real in your mind, and you can actually imagine what you just saw in that book happening to your children on that boat right this second, then the panic sets in, then the protective instinct sets in, and she shouts at the boys to come in. Speaking of fear, I will also say this, and this is not an exaggeration at all. So I go back. All the jokes about this movie making people afraid to go in the water, I think I've alluded to this before. I remember as a kid being afraid. I'd, I'd lay in my bed. This is like from ages maybe 7 to 10, or maybe maybe past that, Josh. We don't have to get into the numbers here. Who's counting? <laughs> but 7 28, to 10. 28. Yeah, <laughs> at least. I would lay in my bed. And I would not lay with my legs fully extended. Hmm. Even though they didn't go off the bed, I would not lay with my legs fully extended because just the thought of my toes sort of dangling or it was it was some monsters I'm sure I was afraid of. But I also was very afraid of this idea of Jaws. I was afraid of the shark somehow being in my bedroom. And and being able to get my feet. And I am not kidding you. It was like I was seven years old all over again. I'm watching this movie. I'm sitting on the couch in my office sort of viewing area. And it's one of those where the side also reclines like a chair. And there were two moments where I caught myself pulling my feet back off of the, the extension. I couldn't let myself fully recline because my my toes were dangling on the floor and Joss was going to get them.
1: Recoiling from the movie, yeah, it's it's that effective. It's would you visceral. ever? Would you ever do? Uh, I've seen park districts do this where they have pools. They'll do a screening of Jaws, and you sit in an inner tube and watch <laughs> it in the pool. I would, I would kind of love no. to, to try that sometime. No thanks. Uh, but just, just to go back to your note about the books, the pictures in the books, it's effective in that scene as a character development and motivation for that moment. But also, I noticed, you know, we've talked, I'm sure, at some point on the show, and everyone talks about all the filmmaking tricks spielberg had to do to get around this faulty mechanical shark right Um, john williams score is one thing using the camera point of view as the shark is another way but it struck me this time that's why we get so many insert shots i think of these books is because he can't show the shark attacking so let's show something even scarier not like a a a janky mechanical shark Mm -hmm. but actual photos of attacks from real life and the autopsy description that Hooper can barely get through that serves the same purpose. So those are just a few other things that stand in place of the actual shark here. In addition to the more traditional ones, people mentioned like the barrels or, or like the pier breaking and then turning around and coming after the guy. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there's just, again, it goes back to the efficiency, the, the killer, great white shark-like efficiency of this movie, where yes. even an insert shot of a shark attack in a book is going to serve multiple purposes for the film.
2: Yeah, and that efficiency and that sense of how to use the camera and get around the shark problem, if you will, also manifests itself so clearly in just the decision to focus on using point of view as a tool. Yeah. It goes back to the the feet of the woman dangling in the water below below the surface, and We are the shark in that moment. And how many times throughout the film, instead of showing us the shark, does he show us what the shark would see? And that's all we need to experience to really feel the horror of Jaws. Jaws is available on demand on most platforms or, you know, just take a dip in any open body of water at night. Whole thing will come right back to you, I promise. If you've seen the movie and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. We are also online. I'm at film spotting. Josh is at Larson on Film on Twitter, and unfortunately, we just had to watch probably pedestrian DVD copies of this movie, Josh. Yeah, to
1: I have my own prepare. copy. It's it's not a 4K Ultra HD copy though. No,
2: no. And even though I've got five of them sitting on my shelf, I couldn't partake. I have to save them for film spotting listeners because Jaws for the first time on 4K Ultra HD ever is available. It's got three and a half hours of bonus content. In addition to that 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray, you get a digital code along with a 44-page booklet with introductions, rare photos, storyboards, more from the archive. The bonus content includes deleted scenes, outtakes from the set, and more about the making of one of the all-time great films, Jaws, and we've got those five copies. We're giving them away to spotting listeners, we've really done all the work for you. All you have to do is write in feedback at FilmSpotting.net, put JAWS contest in the subject line, and tell us your favorite moment. It could be just a single line, a single shot, a single sound, whatever it is, JAWS contest in the subject line, email it to feedback at FilmSpotting.net. We will pick the winners randomly and announce them on next week's show
1: we've got a new film spotting poll when we come back we're asking for your favorite film of this most unusual movie year then it is our power ranking of Steven Spielberg's filmmaking decades will Jaws put the 1970s over the top stay with us
0: there's already so much pain so much pain so much pain there's already so much pain and there ain't nothing else we can do hey she there's already so much pain, so much pain. So much pain There's already so much pain And there ain't nothing else we can do Alright, listen up! They got tanks coming through right here Through right here Through right here oh, no. They got tanks coming through right here And there ain't nothing else we can do All together, They guys. got tanks coming through right here Through right here Through right here yeah. They got tanks coming through right here And there ain't nothing else we can do but fight I like your tattoos.
3: What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Don't be. It's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad.
1: That's from the trailer for Judd Apatow's The King of Staten Island. It stars SNL's Pete Davidson and arrived on demand last weekend. This is Apatow's first narrative feature since 2015's really good train wreck with Amy Schumer. This time, he's again working with a comedian who doesn't have a whole lot of acting experience. As with Trainwreck, Staten Island is a semi-autobiographical story of its star. So like the character in the film, Davidson did lose his firefighter dad in the line of duty also in the film, Marissa Tomei as Davidson's mother and Steve Buscemi as a firefighter who worked with Davidson's dad. I'm a bit of an Apatow apologist, Adam. I've stuck with him all these many years, but have not yet had a chance to see The King of Staten Island. You did fit it in. Uh, Should I be excited? Yes? No? Maybe? You should
2: see it. I think you should see it for sure, especially because, as you said, you are an Apatow apologist. And I even had that phrase rolling around in my head and I was like is that really accurate I mean I know there are some people that don't love his work but I don't think of him as that divisive of a filmmaker and of all the films he's made in terms of narrative films and his comedies I've only been negative on one of them this is 40 otherwise I've mm-hmm. been me too I've been on the Apatow train since knocked up and going back to the 40 year old virgin and trainwreck as well we both gave a very positive review to in 2015 and I don't want to make the mistake of giving Judd Apatow credit for what he's done with his comedians turn really first time actors in a leading role like he's doing here with Pete Davidson, like he did with Amy Schumer in Trainwreck. But we were both big fans of that Amy Schumer performance. And I think even in some subpar movies with subpar material, she's shown herself to be a true talent as an actress. And I can tell you that I'm ready to see whatever Pete Davidson is going to do next on screen. Mm. And if it's owed in some way to Apatow's understanding of talent and certainly how to mold these comedians into real presences on screen, whatever it is, it's working because it's there. Pete Davidson's a real actor, at least based on what I'm seeing in The King of Staten Island. In terms of the film itself, I maybe can't go... Overboard in praising it, just because you know when you've got a character like his, Scott, who opens the movie pretty much trying to kill himself, so distraught over where he's at in life, never really getting over the loss of his father, that he does attempt suicide. This is in the opening scene of the film. It's an aborted attempt, but he comes really close, and then we see how he pretty much just spends his time getting high with his friends in his basement, and he's so... Lost and frankly confused about how the world should work, and so irresponsible that he really doesn't see a problem in practicing his tattoo artistry on like a seven year old kid who wanders by. You can't expect that at the end of the film, if Apatow trusts us as viewers and knows what he's doing, you can't expect that we're going to get this totally inspirational transformation into an upright human being who realizes all his hopes and dreams and and everything is just right with the world that would be really false and this movie doesn't end really falsely but it might just end falsely enough josh it might just ring Mm. that little bit hollow for me in terms of some of the development we see in his character and his talent that again i may be not enthusiastically recommending the king of staten island but i am recommending it and Davidson's performance is a big part of it, but it is also these supporting players. It's someone so good like Steve Buscemi who shows up and doesn't play a major role, but does play a pivotal role in the story. And it's Steve Buscemi. He's, he's always great. Marissa Tomei, as his mother, is really good here. Bill Burr, another comedian, giving a really good performance as a bit of a rival to scott because he's fallen in love with marisa tomei with his mother and you know who else was so great to see here josh and it was one of those faces and it's some acting that you're watching and going this actress is so good she's so good and she seems so familiar who did they get to play this part you're assuming that it's maybe a first timer even that apatow discovered and you quickly google it and you find that it's belle powley from the diary of a teenage girl Oh yeah. And she's she's really wonderful. Not a surprise at all for anyone who's seen that Marielle Heller film. So
1: yeah, I hope you catch up with it. All right. It's on the list. It does sound good to me. The King of Staten Island is available to rent on demand on most platforms. If you've seen it and agree or disagree, send your thoughts to feedback at filmspotting.net. Next
2: week, we're not going off to Amity Island, but we are going to take a quick summer break. And it's time now, Josh, for an on air production meeting. Oh, fun! Yeah, who doesn't love this part of film spotting? We're going to be back in two weeks, and we do know for sure that we are going to discuss the next film in our Christopher Nolan overview. review. We're going through the director's entire filmography in preparation for Tenet, which was supposed to come out in theaters July 17th. That has now been moved to the end of July, July 31st. But on July 17 now, they're releasing Inception in theaters, it seems. Okay. Hopefully theaters are going to be open and Inception is going to play. Inception is actually the next film in our list if we were going chronologically. We should go Inception from 2010, then 2014's Interstellar. I have suggested to Sam, our producer, that maybe we go ahead and do Interstellar first and save Inception for that seven seventeen weekend when it hits theaters. You never know. Listeners may have the chance to see that movie in theaters revisit it on the big screen and then they could listen to our show just that week. I feel like we're just maybe tapping into the zeitgeist a little bit more. Josh, if we save it versus doing it when we come back, but I don't know. So I'm throwing it out to you now.
1: Well, um, can we go backwards? If you can go backwards with a filmmaker, it's Nolan. Here's my reaction to this idea. I hopped onto the uh, the shared script that our producer Sam puts together uh, a little earlier today, just to just see what was ahead of me for tonight. Yeah. And I noticed that it said Interstellar, and my immediate response was, "Oh, Sam's just you know he mis- misplaced those." And and I actually typed in Inception because <laughs> I cannot imagine a worse idea. Okay. Than to going out. Out of chronological, mm. I mean, we we heard we got crap when we did this with the Batman film. Not much, not uh, and, much. And, and and though you know, those had a logical reason for doing this. Okay, I knew this I, would happen. I, I vociferously would rather not do this, but if you know, if if we have to, we can. I guess my thought would be that people can still. I know the timing isn't right. I think it's you know and I share this with you, sort of the obsessive compulsive, like the the matching of the film right. with the release date. It's
2: out this weekend. The, Everybody's talking about it. You go to our feed and it's interstellar.
1: It would give me great joy just to see that. But in terms of what we're trying to do with this project is trace progressions of his filmmaking and how one film might lead to another and build upon mm-hmm. another. Again, I know we messed with that. Yeah, with the Yeah. And it was your films. idea to mess with it. <laughs> But but I think in that case, it made more sense. Uh-huh. I'm going to vote. We stick with the chronological order. I don't know how weighted my vote is. I think that's where Sam is, too,
2: though. He, he didn't feel strongly. He was hearing me out, but it's probably two against one.
1: Well, people will still be able to just go back to that show. They it'll will. be it'll be. But uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Okay. I can see the business appeal of, hey, Inceptions in theaters, Yeah, here's a podcast with Inception. Right. I get that aspect, but uh, I don't know. I don't okay. know.
2: Okay. Well, then in two weeks, we're probably coming back and talking about Inception because Josh's <laughs> impassioned plea <laughs> for normalcy and reason <laughs> did did impact me. So- Look forward to that. Look forward to more Nolan as we have to fit in a few films before Tenant, hoping we're all going to actually get to go see that in the theater. Along with Inception, we're going to share our top five films of the very strange year that is 2020 so far. We recognize it's not normal. That doesn't mean we don't have five films that we feel pretty strongly about
1: as being very good to great. And we'll highlight those on that show. And you can be part of that discussion by answering the new film spotting poll. We're asking... What is the best film of 2020 so far? And here are the options we're going to give you. Kitty Green's The Assistant, which is available to rent on most platforms. Spike Lee's to Five Bloods, the new one, just came to Netflix. And man, this one seems like it was from two years ago, but still for both of us, I think, Adam, one of the strongest of 2020, Kelly Reichert's first cow. It's not available on demand right now, but word is that A24 is planning to re-release it in theaters later this year. So hopefully some listeners did get a chance to see that when it was out briefly previously another option is lee one l's the invisible man which is available on demand and then also on demand is our last choice eliza hitman's never rarely sometimes always we will give other as an option too but i think that's a pretty strong slate in any movie year adam is your number one right now on that list oh holy cow i i've not even thought no, about it's this. first cow um, it's first cow josh Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I didn't want you to spoil it, but, you know. Well, I haven't sat down and thought about it. Obviously, you know, slip of the tongue there, that's probably where I'm leaning. Uh, But there's also some catching up to do. I haven't seen The Assistant. And I have two or three other films that I want to see before we do this show as well. In early voting over
2: at filmspotting.net, Spike Lee's
1: Defive Bloods
2: is on top. Other is close behind. I can't wait to look through those and see what viewing I need to catch up on, perhaps. Maybe Spike's on top because he belongs on top. We talked about Defy Bloods last week on the show. Maybe there's the Netflix factor at play there a little bit, and that I think it's the only one of that bunch that if you have a Netflix subscription, you can see on that platform versus renting on demand. Some of the other titles that are getting other votes, Golden Brick Candidates Blow the Man Down and The Vast of Night. Both are on Prime Video. They've been talked about on this show. Autumn Wilde's Emma with Anya Taylor-Joy. That's available on demand. I have seen it and certainly recommend catching up with it if you haven't. And Josephine Decker's Shirley. This is on demand and it's free to Hulu subscribers. And I knew Sam, our producer, was going to make sure that was on the list because I'm pretty sure right now that's his favorite film of the year so far.
1: Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. So yeah, in, you got to see in it. In contrast, in contrast with you, so exactly. Yeah, I do want to see both of those. Surely, definitely, and Emma as well. Though I don't know if I'll make that because I'm I'm kind of in a pact with my younger daughter. I'm rereading Emma. She's reading it because we want to. You know, I know you hate this, Adam, but we can't. We want to do that before we sit down and watch this mm-hmm. latest adaptation. I don't know. I'm a slow reader. I've said that before. <laughs> I don't know if I'll get it done in time for that show but i do want to see emma as well i'm just curious is this show called book spotting or is it called (laughs) film spotting
2: i don't know well sometimes you get to do both that's the great thing about Mm -hmm. book adaptations okay you can vote now and leave a comment at Filmspotting.net. i do have a quick correction tied to our review last week of defy bloods and it's one of those that i probably shouldn't bother correcting in the sense that Only one person has even brought it up, and they were very, very nice about it. After all the people who've downloaded that show, all the people who saw my letterboxed review, I've only gotten one comment. It was from OG McDuck over on on Twitter, and they just brought up that they thought it was worth taking a closer look at those flashback scenes from Defive 5 Bloods. We spent a decent amount of time, or I did anyway, talking about Spike Lee's decision to have those older actors play themselves in those flashback scenes going mm-hmm. back yeah. they'd be like 40 years younger. And I even said, you know, I would have liked it better if he'd gone full on Brecht and had them play themselves with no disguise. It was so clear that they were these older men, these 65, 66 year old men playing 19 year old versions of themselves. And maybe we had found a different way to transition and it didn't need to feel quote unquote, right. It didn't need to feel authentic in the sense that we were maybe watching these moments as they really played out. And and maybe I still would have appreciated that more, but he did make me go back and take a closer look. And I think it speaks to just how much of a film, how much that film is in general. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that a little bit and how confusing those war scenes are in particular, how chaotic they are. And by design, it seems they're not focusing on any faces or bodies so that it's really hard to get a sense of of who the actors are, even in those moments that other people haven't commented on it, Josh. But if you look closely at the scenes where they do take a pause in the fighting and they're just talking as soldiers, they really don't do anything to disguise them as older men. They really did just have those actors put on the gear and play themselves. So in a way, Spike, went for exactly what I didn't think he went for, though the film's so distracting in those scenes again that it almost makes you think they're trying to cover it up and at the end we get a photo that shows them clearly in makeup and disguised as the younger soldiers they were so it's a little bit confusing and maybe I still would have appreciated the movie more if he had found a different way to incorporate those flashbacks and those performers within it, but I want to call it out. I think that was a miss by me in terms of recognizing that it's those actors in those scenes.
1: Yeah. You know, as you were saying that, that wasn't my impression, but I didn't have a clear strong enough memory myself. Sure. And I, I even said it took me two scenes before I even fully, like the first time they did it, I was kind of like, wait a minute. It, it, yeah. Is that the same guy? For sure. And then, the, and then the scene is over. So so I didn't have a clear enough memory, but my instinct was that it was just them basically dropped back in the flashbacks. But yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of, and I think you're right, it is intentional chaos. And we didn't get into this either, but heavy gore in those yeah. battle sequences where we're really seeing the visceral, the bodily cost of that warfare to, to these men and the other, the Vietnamese that they're fighting against. Yeah.
2: Well, we move on from Defy Bloods to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt in case you missed it. Here's a bit of last week's Massacre. And really, I'm glad we're playing it in case people want to get in on the action, Josh, and maybe win that shirt. But I'm not sure that our renditions of this scene and trying to imitate these actors
1: really is worthy. All he's got is that stupid gun he carries around like he's John Wayne. That ain't going to help you. You're an effing bastard. You know that? Huh? Sal, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. Yeah, you kind of need my pantomiming. Those were your notes, right? Yes. Your notes to me yeah, last time. were very time visual,
2: is... which doesn't help yeah. a radio or podcast audience. So no, I got to remember that <laughs> if you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this coming Monday, June 29th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on next week's show.
1: This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, something really special that I'm excited about. It's the Studio Ghibli special with the Ghibli Archive newly available to stream on HBO Max. They take a look at Hayao Miyazaki's first film for the studio that he co-founded. So this was Castle in the Sky from 1986. I'm sure, Adam, you guys have covered this one in your Kemp and Our Family Miyazaki marathon.
2: Yeah, we did. We made it through all of the Miyazaki films Ended triumphantly. Really triumphantly with the wind rises, and Castle in the Sky definitely included. We actually have Sam pulled a letterboxed user. The name, the name Sophie K. Hmm, it seems familiar. The <laughs> quote about Castle in the Sky is Laputo reminded me of Gateway Galaxy from Super Mario Galaxy, and honestly, that's the highest praise I could possibly offer. So, all right, I think I think my daughter Sophie's in line to be the fifth co-host of the next picture show. I think with that kind of insightful (laughs) film criticism. And I brought this up to her today when I saw that Sam had pulled that quote and she doubled down. She's all in on the connection between Castle in the Sky to Gateway Galaxy from that video game. And it's high praise.
1: Well, someone should alert Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky so that they can make a little room there for Sophie. New episodes of The Next Picture Show, they post every Tuesday. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. I think, Josh, that it's actually been now two weeks
2: where we failed to mention the names of our latest batch of patrons, our latest family members over on Patreon, And that means we've got a little bit of a bottleneck here. We have a lot of names piled up, and I think we can get through them relatively quickly, and I think they all deserve the recognition. You're going to have to help me out, though, so I don't run out of breath. So I'm going to do the first batch, and then you can jump in. We would like to thank Ken, Dan, Don, Allison, Daniel, Chris E., James S., Lisa, Nick, Tom, Leslie, Robert, Richard, Patrick, Ruth Ann, Chris W., Eric, Neil, Adam, James A., Mark K., Alfredo, Stephen, Angel or Angel, Monique, Marin, Matthew K., Bob, Mike, Andrew, Ben, and
1: Keegan. And in addition to those wonderfully generous folks, we'd also want to thank Jared, Rockwell, Laura, Michael, William, Mitch, Bryce, Stephen, Steve, Rory, Crusades, Nicole, Mark W, Michael W, Rob Palacious T, Jose Aaron, Nick Jeremy P Elliot, Brock Kabir, Alexander and Chris M. We do thank everyone who is new to the family and I mentioned James S, that's
2: James Shu, who said if you chose my comment to read on air, that would be fitting during this Spielberg episode because Spielberg is the filmmaker who made him fall in love with film and who made him take film really seriously. So James writes, my monthly contribution comes several years too late, but hopefully it's better late than never. I've been listening for so long, it's hard to remember when I began, but it's been at least five years and probably longer. Adam and Josh's soothing voices and Michael Phillips' occasional highbrow mutterings have been the soundtrack (laughs) to my transition from young adulthood to just plain adulthood. It's been a tumultuous few years for me, but through all the ups and downs, film spotting has been one of the constants in my life. A weekly Escape to a place of safety, comfort, and stimulating conversation about my favorite thing in the world movies. I turned 34 in a few days and could think of no better way to celebrate than to pay it forward by paying the dealer. I'm proud to be a listener and now a
1: belated supporter. Looking forward to many more years. Cheers, James Hsu. Cheers to you, James. Thank you so much. And welcome to the Film Spotting Family over on Patreon. If you want to become a patron, here's what you get ad free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads. Live pre sales and discounts for those shows, a merch discount and monthly bonus episodes. We have, I believe, a subject for our June bonus app, which we're going to make available on June twenty eight. We still have to record it or audio record or video record. What are we doing here? What are we doing here, Adam? Well,
2: Another on-air production meeting I've suggested, and I hope our listeners will go along with it. In fact, it was a listener who suggested it. They said, if you're really going to do this right and you're really going to give us some behind-the-scenes access, give us some insight, the insight we deserve as film-spotting family members, then show us your actual Criterion closet. So it's not just about saying, hey, these are the films that if we could go into the Criterion closet that we would pick out and make sure we left with, but which ones do we already own? And maybe we should film that and show people our actual collections, our actual criterion collections. And I'm all for it and wondered if maybe we should take it a step further. And instead of posting an audio episode like we would traditionally do, maybe we should go ahead and film two different segments, three if Sam wants to play along. Sounds like his criterion collection isn't quite a collection. There might be one or two titles in there, but there would be at least two videos, me and you, Josh, posting what it looks like. When we go to our shelf and pull out one of those beautiful criterions, what do you think?
1: Well, I'm open to it, but you mentioned this being behind the scenes content. They would really get that from me because as you know, I moved, Adam, and what used to be, you know, a a nice sized house with a a room that just had a piano and all these bookshelves. I had a real library. I once had a library, Adam, with shelves. You gave that that up? that had DVDs lined. Well, we've we've done a you little fool. downsizing. A little bit smaller of a space that I moved into in the last week. My Criterion closet now is actually also my closet. So ah. this video will contain, yes, some titles, but, you know, I, they'll see some socks and underwear, too. I so mean, I, I mean, it's
2: perfect. It's truly your Criterion closet. I mean, Ex- exactly. it's like you you did it for
1: the show. As long as family members uh, are OK with that, I'm OK with it. OK,
2: patreon.com slash film is where you can sign up, where you can get a look at Josh's socks if you would like. Also, if you sign up, if you're one of those names that we feature on an upcoming episode, you are helping us get closer to 900 patrons. And once we hit that goal, We are going to hold a virtual watch party with the two of us, and Sam, the movie is to be named later. I don't know how we're going to narrow it down and pick, but we will come up with at least three titles. We will let our family members on Patreon vote to select what movie they would like to watch along with us, and I guess hear us joke about and comment on in the moment. I think that's how it works. Josh, you've done a couple of these.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. It's like doing a live DVD commentary, essentially. So it's it's really fun. And maybe we go with, you know, we just wrapped up Film Spotting Madness a couple of, well, I guess a couple of months ago now, and that was best of the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Maybe we go with, you know, the, the four finalists from that as options. That would be one way. But yeah, we'll, we'll see where we head with the film. But pretty soon I think we're going to hit it uh, yeah. that would be pretty fun and a watch party would be a blast
2: yeah as of this taping we are only 60 patrons away so nice you could be the one to put us over the top again patreon.com slash film spotting
0: welfare's come and taken baby Langston forever they're going to keep him in that foster home I don't want my baby back now are you gonna help me or not
3: well where's he now
2: over in sugar Land. Goldie Hawn there from the trailer for 1974's Sugarland Express, also starring William Atherton. Steven Spielberg's first theatrical feature, though Duel, a feature-length made-for-TV movie, was released later in theaters overseas. It actually came out three years before Sugarland Express in 1971. Sugarland, one of my Spielberg blind spots before approaching this power ranking, and I'm really glad I saw it because it may not be top five or 10 Spielberg, but I think it's really good Spielberg. And you touched on it right during our discussion of Jaws, Verna Fields as the editor, some of the same attention to timing and movement is very evident in this film as a precursor to Jaws, as well as just some of the attention to detail with the shots themselves and the framing. So definitely think if you, like me, have avoided somehow Sugarland Express over the years, it's definitely worth seeing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm glad you made time for it. A couple of weeks ago, as we were envisioning eventually getting to this Spielberg show, we asked you to name your favorite Spielberg decade. And Sam, of course, as he likes to do, he likes to torture all of us, but it's really there to help us. It's supposed to help us. And it did, in a demented way, help me form my list, as you'll hear in a moment. He's applying madness rules. You're going to pick a decade. You can only pick one in the poll. It's not a ranking. You can only pick one of his five decades, so all the other four you're imagining are just going in the incinerator they're lost to time forever that's supposed to help you focus in crystallize in your mind which decade you value the most i'm going to give you the options here josh as we presented them in reverse chronological order you could go the 2010s and rather than list the titles because we're going to get into the titles from each decade when we get into the power ranking i thought i would do a little exercise here where we would both look at the titles And what do you think is the one movie that is representative, best representative of that movie decade? The way I would frame it is not which one do you think is the best Spielberg Mm -hmm. movie of the decade. But imagine yourself, I don't know, as a creative director or an art director who's curating Spielberg movies and you've been tasked with putting together the poster and the poster only has room for one image from each of these decades of the films from the 2010s. Which one do you
1: choose? I'm going to go with Lincoln.
2: Yeah, Lincoln was my choice as well. Seven films there in the 2000s. He also had seven films that came out in the 2000s. And I know this one's a little bit tougher for you, but if you're picking the one image, the one poster, which one is it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to go AI, but I think you have to go with one of his Tom Cruise pairings. And maybe, I think Cruise is more of a factor in minority reports, so maybe that's the one that I would go hmm. with.
2: I think your reasoning is sound, and maybe it is my personal preference coming through. I'd go with Catch Me If You Can. That brings us to the 1990s. We have six movies there. This one's pretty easy, No.
1: Yeah, it's Jurassic Park. I mean, Saving Private Ryan is- Yeah, or Schindler's (laughs) List. Something, and Schindler's are something to contend with. But the one you still hear people talk about the most is Jurassic
2: Park. That brings us to your fourth option, the 1980s. And yeah, it's tough. Raiders or E.T.? Yeah, but it's also the decade of Raiders.
1: You know, I think we'll get into this uh, when we get to our power rankings. So the first three films all in the 1980s, you've got to pick a poster and it'd probably be Raiders of the Lost Ark.
2: Yeah, I think seven films, again, that came out in the 80s from Spielberg and finally the 1970s. Only five films if you count Duel and, I mean,
1: it's Jaws, right? It is Jaws. I mean, Close Encounters... I could see wanting to go that way, but just the poster alone. I mean, Jaws is one of the greatest posters of all time. So that's got to be the choice. So how did the results come out? How do our listeners
2: power rank the Spielberg decades?
1: So in last place with listeners is the 2010s that only received 0.5% of the vote. The 2000s received 7%. And then these two were tight. The 1970s received 24% of the vote. The 1990s received 27% of the vote. But winning with 41% is the 1980s. I'm guessing we have a fair amount of 90s babies
2: listening to film spotting who were maybe really impacted by films like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, but especially Jurassic Park and maybe even, alas, Hook. Thank you to everyone who voted in that poll. I think it sets up nicely our endeavor here as we go through the five decades of Spielberg and we provide our power rankings. Now, this is the third on-air production meeting. Of course, we could have done this off-air, but I thought thought it was more fun. I thought it was more fun to just play it out. How would you like to approach this as a traditional top five where Mm -hmm. we each count down from five to one or, and this is my vote, Do we start with the most recent, go reverse chronological, start with the 2010s, and we see how our decades stack up with our rankings?
1: Yeah, let's do that. Uh, I'll go with that. I mean, I'm biased because you told me it was your idea. So automatically, Uh I want to push back against it. Um, but, But I think, nevertheless, it's a good idea. Okay, so we are going to start
2: with the 2010s it may or may not just so happen that that could be number five for one or both of us. Where do you put the 2010s for Steven Spielberg? The films, The Adventures of Tintin, Warhorse Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, The BFG, The Post, and Ready Player One.
1: All right. Well, not to complicate things at the start, but I have three tiers of my power rankings. Okay? <laughs> oh, I did a lot of math
2: here. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: Which And it was, it was really helpful. So for context, the 2010s, I have it ranked fourth, and it is in my third tier, so so the lower tier with one other decade. Um, the way I thought about this is how many of the films from this decade are in my top five Spielberg films, um, if I were mm-hmm. just ranking his films. And if you look at the 2010s, you mentioned the films. I have zero from that decade that are in my top five. I do, however, have two. <laughs> gets a little more confusing. If you look at my Spielberg ranked list, I have tiers of those two just in my head. Like here's like top tier Spielberg. Then there's mid tier and there's lower tier. I do right. have two top tier Spielberg in the 2010s. That would be Lincoln and it would be The Post. Um, so, you know, still strong body of work in this decade. I do, however, have one title from the 2010s that is in my bottom tier. And it is the film, the last film I needed to see to be a Spielberg completist. Um, turns out there were reasons, good reasons, to have dragged my feet to catch up with Ready Player One. Not great. Not great, Adam. Um, no, it's not. And so that alone kind of, you know, was, in addition with none of the other films really being in my top five of all time, um, bumped the 2010s to my lowest power ranking tier, and I've got it at number four.
2: Okay. Well, we definitely see the 2010s for Mr. Spielberg a little bit differently, and we have them ranked differently. For me, this was a clear... Clear number five, and the only way I could really approach it, and maybe this isn't elegant, I definitely could have come up with some better phrasing, but each decade's got one movie I haven't seen. I've got one blind spot for Spielberg from each decade, and for me in the 2010s, it's the BFG, and I don't really feel bad about it. One movie that I'm just calling less than fine, not good, it's Ready Player One. I'm with you there, Josh. I think The Post is probably a little overrated, even though it's not the movie I put in that category here. I'm calling it just fine. It's fine. Pretty good. I like Bridge of Spies. And then I've got two movies that I will just freely admit are probably underrated. I'm probably wrong about. Lincoln was a mixed review for me at the Mm. time. And The Adventures of Tintin, I think is fun. It's fun. I'm not down on it, but I'm also not enamored with it. And then my one film that is maybe overrated At least in terms of how I feel about it, compared to I think a lot of cinephiles and maybe a lot of Spielberg fans, I'm actually a pretty big fan of War Horse. I think that's his best film of the 2010s. But there isn't an undeniably great film here, and I'm with you. There's not a movie from this decade that fits into Spielberg's top five or ten. I maybe have one of those in the top fifteen. So for me, it's a clear number five slot for yeah. the 2010s.
1: I can see it. I mean, it was battling for a decade. We'll get to, for me, for that number five spot. I I, I think War Horse is quite good as well. Um, there, there's a little bit of schmaltziness to there. Uh, I think, you know, part of the problem with some of these during this decade is you could have issues with almost all of them, even Lincoln, which I think is top tier Spielberg. I have some issues with. Um, I do think you're probably underrating The Post, And uh, but I would also agree with you. The BFG, I think, is a good film, Um, It has some wonderful Spielberg moments, but um, not only is it not top-tier Spielberg, it's definitely not your type of thing. (laughs) So I don't think that would basically sway you um, from moving this out of fifth place. Okay,
2: so going reverse chronologically again, the 2000s are up. Josh, go ahead and give us the titles and
1: let's get your ranking. All right. AI Artificial Intelligence, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, War of the Worlds. Munich and Indiana Jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull. So the two thousands for me are firmly here alone. It's the only decade in this middle tier of my power rankings, because I think it's well above the 20 tons that we just talked about. And the other decade we'll get to, but it's not quite, you know, the peak Spielberg, mm-hmm. but such good stuff here. And let's start with AI artificial intelligence, which I did revisit for this project. It is um, you know, in my top five Spielberg films of all time, it probably fell a little bit in that ranking. I will say after a revisit, um, I've here and there on the show talked about it potentially being his best film. Um, I still think it's, it's up there. Um, but maybe not number one as we'll see. But in addition to that, Adam, the two thousands gave me four other films that I would say are top tier Spielberg, AI, and then minority report. War of the Worlds, the two cruise pictures. I think I'm probably higher on War of the Worlds than most people. This one, yeah. I know, I know, I'm higher on than most people. Um, you're a champion for Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, Adam. I'm right there yeah. with you. I defend Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I recognize, I, do too. I recognize the problems with it. Me too. Um, but it's for me, it's almost. I don't want to say it's quite like George Lucas's prequels, but it has that auteurist. Um, verve to it um, amidst the silliness that you also get, especially in Crystal Skull, that I I just still geek out on. So I think that's top tier Spielberg. And here using my formula, I don't have any from the 2000s, I would say, are bottom tier Spielberg. Um, So a strong decade for me, the 2000s. I've got it ranked third. Okay. I've got it ranked third as
2: well. And That was a real revelation for me going through this process. You'll hear why when we get to my number four pick, because it was very close, but we just have different reasons for appreciating the 2000s. My didn't see from this decade is The Terminal, which again, I don't really feel too guilty about. For me, my Less Than Fine, a movie that I've only seen once, but when Sam and I reviewed it on the show, I think back in 05, an early review. Neither of us were fans of War of the Worlds. I don't have a fine from this decade. I don't have a pretty good from this decade. I do have a movie that is probably overrated, and you touched on it. It's Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. I know I value that movie way more than so many other people and so many other listeners do. And I felt really good about it, Josh. I wasn't going to have any shame at all until you invoked the prequels just there. (laughs) So I don't think that's what you were intending. But that was the effect. And then I've got two films that really help explain part of why this is my third-ranked decade. You have Minority Report and AI, which I am willing to admit are probably great and certainly potentially great Spielberg films that I am not that excited about and that huh. I really badly need to revisit. So they are, they are underrated by me, but I know the potential is there for me to have a different reaction to them on a second viewing. And then you go from those two to two films that I have as upper tier Spielberg, definitely in the top 10, catch me if you can and Munich. So Mm. this is where the incinerator came in. And I don't want to talk about the other decade, my number four choice just yet. But when I really came down to thinking about catch me if you can and Munich being gone forever and not having the ability to rewatch and reappraise AI and minority report that did give this decade a leg up over my number 4 choice.
1: Yeah, but now we you've got to catch me up on incinerator rules for the power ranking, you know, for the poll, well, that's, for the poll, you know, as you're as you're all. going
2: through it. Yeah, as you're going through it though, if you're deciding between 5 and 4, in that moment it just okay. comes down to those two decades. That's the it. exercise, yeah, right? Yeah. Or 4 and 3. So, going through that process did help me as I tried to come up with my most accurate power ranking. So we have now hit the 2010s and the 2000s. That brings us to the 1990s, which our listeners have as the second best decade. And it's because of titles like this, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, also Jurassic Park, The Lost World, Amistad, and Hook. So where do you put this one, Josh?
1: Dear listeners, please forgive me. Uh, I'm ranking the 1990s fifth. And that wow. is, that is, wow. d- despite the fact that <laughs> um, I do think Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan are both top tier Spielberg, but I have zero titles from this decade in my top five of his films. Um, I have two that are in my bottom tier of his films. And that's, you know, part of, part, the deciding factor here. Hook, I know there's a lot of affection for, but I, I've seen it, you know, maybe five to ten years ago, and I think it's um, uh, it's kind of like the Goonies for me, maybe, uh, for those who grew up on Hook, the way I grew up on the Goonies. Uh, it's, I still like the Goonies. It's fun. It's nostalgic. But as a film of its own, independent of that experience, I don't know if it holds up as much as I'd like it to, and I think Hook kind of no, falls it doesn't. in that category. Um, and so... The other thing that really, though, Adam tipped this into fifth place for me. The second one in my bottom tier is the Lost World. Um, I think that's you know that's one of the movies where you wonder is was this really directed by Spielberg as you're watching it? Uh, and I would say the same for sequences of Ready Player One. It's it's just the sort of stuff that you saw him do in Jaws so efficiently and so perfectly um, is not handled well in the Lost World. Um, And that brings us to the fact that I'm cooler than most on Jurassic Park. I think, again, this is a generational thing. For many people, Jurassic Park is their jaws, right? It was the same experience. It provided the same chills, the same um, fears and scares. And there is amazing craft in Jurassic Park. Amazing craft. Um, Sequences we can think of right away. The cup of water, right? Um, So I get that, but... I think a lot of this, what we spent time talking about, Adam, in our Jaws revisit, uh, the character development, the family dynamics, all of those things, even though there may be touch points of that in Jurassic Park, they don't ring as solidly in that film as they do in his earlier ones. So I like mm-hmm. Jurassic Park. I think it's a good film, um, but uh, I'm cooler on it than most. So that, in addition to Hook and having The Lost World in this decade, yeah. dropped it down to fifth.
2: Yeah, I thought I was going to be the heretic here by putting it fourth, all the way down at fourth, and then you put it at fifth and doubled down and trashed Jurassic Park, a beloved whoa, film.
1: Whoa, 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 A Mis- beloved
2: film with so many of our listeners.
1: Mr. Pence, that's a mischaracterization. <laughs> I trashed. I trashed The Lost World,
2: okay? Okay, that's true. That is more accurate. I will give you that. So The Lost World for me is the one movie from this decade I haven't seen, and continuing a theme, don't feel bad about it. Less Than Fine from this decade... And it's really in its own category for me of, yikes, sorry, for those who are nostalgic for it, Hook, it's my least favorite Spielberg film. Mm. I think it's his worst film that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I have no fines. I have a pretty good in Amistad. I have a really good in Jurassic Park. I'm with you in that I probably do not, I definitely do not revere that as much as a lot of our listeners who I know would put that in top three Spielberg. Sure, And yeah. I would have to look at my list. It might be in the top 10, but I think it's outside the top 10. I really do like Saving Private Ryan. I suppose it would fit into that really good category with Jurassic Park as well. It doesn't count as an overrated movie in that I'm not someone who overrates it. I think maybe most people do. It isn't top tier against Spielberg for me, but then what is one that's definitely properly rated is Schindler's List. So as I look at the 1990s, It does have, for me, Spielberg's worst, as I said, hook. Overall, not bad output at all, and I understand why listeners had it in second place, but it is fourth for me because, as I said before, when I thought about having the ability to rewatch Schindler's List and Jurassic Park and Saving Private Ryan versus seeing Catch Me If You Can and Munich again and knowing that I could revisit Minority Report and AI, the 2000s just seemed like a richer Spielberg decade to me. That's why it's at four.
1: Yeah. No, I'm clearly with you. Had it even higher. So, And, and I think you're right about Saving Private Ryan, too. That is one I haven't seen in in a long time. But I imagine the, the shock effect of that film, which I can mm-hmm. still remember experiencing when it came out in theaters, um, wearing off a bit. Even then, I, I had issues with some of the sentimentality and, and that, sort of, that sort of thing. So I think that would probably bother me a little bit more revisiting it. That brings us to our final two decades and our final two slots. So we're going to
2: find out here as we get to the 1980s whether or not it's our co-favorite Spielberg decade or is it somehow a runner-up to the 1970s. Josh, the
1: 1980s titles are... Got off to a bang with Raiders of the Lost Ark and then didn't let up E.T., the extraterrestrial, was Spielberg's next film. He then did Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, followed by The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and then finished the 1980s with Always. So... Adam, I, I accused listeners of generational bias when it came to the 1990s. Here we go. I It's number one for me. And I really tried to do the revisiting homework to take out the nostalgia factor in doing this exercise. I did watch the, the film I mentioned but didn't name. I, I alluded to on our last episode that I really wanted to revisit in order to tip the scales for this power ranking. Because I knew it was going to be between the 80s and the 70s. Um, and I knew it was very close was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and whew, it's his best film, Adam. It's his best film for me. Really? Um, yeah, we can, we can maybe get to that a little bit, but let me go back to the math, the formula here. For the 1980s, I have two titles in my top five, all right? Um, that would be Raiders and E.T., there are three titles from this decade that are in my top tier of Spielberg films. In addition to those two I just mentioned, it would be Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. As I said, big fan as you are of that one. Mm-hmm. There is one film here in my bottom tier, and that is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I know that, you know it's almost swinging back. There are some defenders of that movie, but even having revisited it in the last five to 10 years or so, um, it, it is a bit of a misfire for me. So what did tip the scales over the 1970s? Ultimately for me, I might as well get this out of the way. Now it is that ET factor. It is rewatching it. Um, if I rank it ahead of Jaws, I have Jaws as Spielberg's number two film. And the, the difference between those is so minute, but if I rank it ahead, it's because it feels more personal and, Don't get me wrong. We spent how much of our Sacred Cow review talking about how personal Jaws was, right? So this Mm -hmm. is not a slight um, on Jaws in anything it was lacking in that way, but it's personal in a way that's different from E.T. E.T., you just got the sense that Spielberg, minus the alien, lived that movie, and If that doesn't seem to make much sense on the surface of it, because it's E.T., it's all about the movie. Just think about how much the domesticity is a part of that film Mm -hmm. and registers and makes it work. So uh, for me, it just pushed E.T. ahead a little bit. That pushed the 1980s to the top. In addition, you know, we've already talked about, it's the decade of Indiana Jones. Three Indiana Jones films. However you feel about Temple of Doom, um, the fact that that cultural stamp was made in the 1980s, uh, pushed them to my first ranking. Well, we came to the same conclusion and even
2: had maybe a pivotal film there in common in E.T. So my math, the one movie from this decade I haven't seen is The Color Purple. And I actually do feel guilty about it because I've read the Alice Walker novel and am a big fan of it. And I know that it's a film that got a lot of acclaim. A lot of people consider it a good Spielberg movie in comparison to the other ones I've overlooked less than fine. There's two of them. It's temple of doom. And one of my blind spots always just saw that. And wow, we could devote an entire segment to talking about (laughs) what doesn't quite work Mm. with always. We will table that for another occasion. I don't have a fine. I don't have a pretty good. I have an underrated meaning I underrate it probably. And that's empire. of The sun only seen it once. Thought it was a solid Spielberg film, but would need to see it again before I could go toe-to-toe with any defender of that film. And there are defenders of that film out there who definitely feel like it's top five or ten Spielberg. The one movie that maybe I overrate, and it sounds like, fortunately, we've talked about it a lot, you're with me, The Last Crusade. I think that's an incredible film. I have it right now as my number five favorite Steven Spielberg movie. So, yeah, maybe it's overrated, but I'm not apologizing for it at all. And then you get to the two that are properly rated, all-time great films, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Mm E.T. So if you consider the level of output compared to the 1970s, which we'll get to, seven films versus four, the batting average might be, I didn't actually do that math, but the batting average of the five films from the 70s might be slightly better, but he took more wax in the 80s and... He hit some home runs, right? With Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. in The Last Crusade. And I really did almost go with the 1970s, Josh. I -hmm. almost had it there, the number one. And it was for this reason. I know that Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite Spielberg movie. But two, three, and four, I could change every minute of the day. Right now, it's Jaws and Close Encounters, third, with E.T., fourth. And so when you look at it that way, you've got one and four versus two and three. That's a really hard equation to solve. But I guess the way I finally just narrowed it down was thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Jaws and Close Encounters. It's hard not to edge a little bit towards the 70s with those two, yep. even as much as I adore Raiders. But when you throw in E.T. yeah, and The Last Crusade, then it's the 80s. It's those three.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's close, but I feel good about where we landed. Like I said, I feel... I feel like we've removed the nostalgia from it. We we grew up with E.T. and Indiana Jones. Um, but Jaws, you know, Jaws was still a thing in the eighties. And yes. and close encounters as well, I remember seeing as a kid. So so in my tiers of our power rankings, you know, for me clearly that top tier was these two decades, the seventies mm-hmm. versus the eighties, and and the eighties just squeezed to the top there.
2: Okay. So we've already touched on it. You already know the seventies is our number two, but I guess in a way to tell us we're wrong as he usually does here on the show. We haven't heard from the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune in a long time. We thought this was a perfect occasion to get a voicemail from him. And it is him telling us that no, we're idiots. The seventies are the best Spielberg decade.
0: Adam, Josh. Hey there. Hope you're doing well. It's still bugging me. I didn't get a chance to take part in your live LA show sidelined by that stinking pandemic, but uh, I made the mistake of buying, not renting a tuxedo for that live and learn, I guess. Anyway, Steven Spielberg, two minutes, let's go. The more I see and re-see Spielberg's work, even the films I don't love, the more I'm just in awe of his ability to straddle classical Hollywood technique and technological savvy. Everyone storyboards, but Spielberg truly designs his individual shots for a variety of movement. And when you have directors like Paul Thomas Anderson admiring some of the staging and camera movement in a good but not great Spielberg film like The Post, you realize how few directors of any age, any background, make camera-actor interplay a visual priority. I guess I'm a sucker for origin stories after all, which is why Spielberg's 70s output will always be the closest to my movie-going heart, and that's primarily on the strength of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The last 20 minutes of Close Encounters gave the 16-year-old me a taste of what Georges Melier's A Trip to the Moon must have been like back in 1902. And it's such fun now to go back and see things I'd never seen before, like Spielberg's teleplay LA 2017 made for the ABC anthology series The Name of the Game back in 71. Not to mention re Duel, which really made his career. And I like Sugar Land Express too, but it's mainly Jaws and Close Encounters, which I just adore beyond any rational, you know... Measurement. Oh, and my Spielberg top five list, oddly enough, even with the presence of ET, the '80s films are the only ones not represented by that list. And my list goes like this: Jaws, Close Encounters, Schindler's List, Minority Report, and Lincoln. For me, that's the five that really show the the range. And uh, and as for Raiders of the Lost Ark, well, you know, it's a free country. If you want to include that in, any list besides, you know, most influential Spielberg picture, unfortunately, that's up to you. See you guys soon, I hope. Take care.
2: You know, it truly is a pleasure to hear that man's voice, even when he's so, so very wrong, (laughs) like he is about Raiders of the Lost Ark. But he's not wrong about the 70s being a great decade. For Steven Spielberg. I love that he echoed, obviously, what I was saying about Jaws in terms of Spielberg and movement. And you see that so wondrously in so many of his films and maybe a little bit of a nostalgia factor for him, even though we talked about Jaws in the first part of this show. And yeah, still a masterpiece. You don't need any nostalgia to appreciate it. So Michael has a lot of support for his claim that the 70s are truly the best Spielberg decade.
1: Yeah, good to hear his voice even if he's chastising us. Thank you for that, Michael. Hopefully we'll all get to be in the studio together at some point here in the future. He named the two films, right? Jaws and Close Encounters. Though that's the reason why the 70s were in such close Contention for me to be ranked first, although as you've discovered, Adam, the Sugarland Express is a really good film. Now, I think maybe Goldie Hawn's performance for me is is the strongest element of it. So, uh, even though I consider it top tier Spielberg, it's not entirely. Due to Spielberg, if that makes any sense. So there's some kind of shifting there that I kind of rationalized as well. Mm-hmm. Duel, though, I mean, Duel is top tier Spielberg for me. And and how I did mm. consider it in my ranking, um, even though it did premiere on television because it's such a movie movie. It's such a theater movie um, and such a Spielberg movie as well, with the tension um, that he creates in that film. So, for me, the 70s, two titles here are in my top five of Spielberg films, unlike, you know, Michael, who has more, and that is Jaws and Close Encounters. And then I have four from this decade that are in my top tier of all of his films. So, super strong decade, only one in my bottom tier. We haven't mentioned, I don't think. 1941, yet. I think a lot of people want to pretend like 1941 doesn't exist. I saw it years ago just out of curiosity. It can't be as bad as its reputation. And it really is just an example of a filmmaker, you know. Admiringly, going in a completely different direction and trying something um, that isn't uh, in his, um, you know, plain style at all, but it just doesn't work. So that works hmm. a little bit against the '70s too, I'd say. Yeah,
2: 1941 doesn't exist for me because I haven't seen it. It's my lone blind spot from the '70s. But you mentioned them two movies that are pretty good to really good: Duel and The Sugarland Express, and then two properly rated revered films close encounters of the third kind and jaws you maybe then do have a dud in 1941 if that's how most people think about it but for those two early efforts jaws and close encounters even overlooking the other two films we both mention, it makes the 70s a clear contender for the top of this list i know we're going to hear from the jurassic park lovers and some of those 90s fans out there and they can bring it but i think we feel pretty good about the 70s in second place Feel
1: really good about it.
2: Okay, there are no honorable mentions for a list like this, but there is one more voicemail we want to get to from a longtime listener of the show, Brett Merriman. He's in Hollywood, out there in LA. Michael mentioned the live show that had to be canceled, and unfortunately, this show that we're taping right now, Josh, is airing on the night that we should be in Brooklyn at the Bell House, That's celebrating right. celebrating 15 years of this show yeah. with... 250 to 300 of our closest friends, film spotting listeners. That would have come a month after what should have been that great night out in LA, where we definitely would have hung out with Brett and others. And because of this coronavirus and this crisis, we have had to cancel, sadly. But we promise we will reschedule. We will be back. And in anticipation of that, we look forward to hearing your voice in person, Brett. For now, we'll have to settle for you explaining why. The 2000s really do deserve to be considered one of Spielberg's best decades.
3: Hello, film spotting. This is Brett Merriman in Los Angeles, uh, ranking the Spielberg decades. Let's get the right answer out of the way. Simply to save Indiana Jones, it has to be the 80s. But let me make a case for the 2000s. By the time he reaches 2001, he has worked through his nostalgia. He's got his Oscars. He's made his money as the most commercially successful director in history, He's experimenting with his style in Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. He's finding out that he works much better when he's fast. Those two are also incredibly personal projects, one for his mom, one for his dad. So in 2001, with the death of Kubrick, he honors a promise to make AI, which jumpstarts what I feel is a new creativity in him, and his films in this period look and feel very different. They're darker, they're way more personal. He's taken the sheen off his style, they're more efficient than slick. But it's really 9-11 that fuels this new period. He makes three 9-11 movies with Minority Report, War of the World, in Munich. And in the middle of that, he makes an absolute classic in Catch Me If You Can. So that's five. Um, on a personal note, I worked for Amblin Universal in the early 2000s. And I think it's safe to say that Steven was the most famous Jewish man in the world at this time. And he was under a tremendous amount of security. So the aftermath of 9-11 was foremost on his mind. And... Maybe for the longest period of his career, he spoke about what was happening in the world around him through his art. And for a director that talented, that's a special thing. And it's why that decade means a lot to me. So thank you, guys.
1: Thank you very much, Brett. Uh, he's he's not wrong about the 2000s. I mean, uh, I had it in that uh, middle tier of his decades uh, here, ranked third overall for me. And I like the context. That Brett brings in terms of what Spielberg may have been thinking about, um, I think you do see a shift visually, tonally, um, and even thematically in some of these movies in the 2000s. And as I said, AI still top five for me. Um, that is a movie. It's the Kubrick, the push and pull of Spielberg and Kubrick going on in that film, and somehow miraculously resolving itself. That makes it such a, a curiosity and a treasure for me. Um, but yeah, the other films Brett mentioned too are really strong. So two thousands did a lot of good work in that decade. Yeah, I think two thousand and
2: one you was probably like now a more sophisticated critic than I was, Josh, because that push pull between Kubrick and Spielberg, I felt it pulling. Mm. <laughs> I think more yeah. than more than them really weaving together in the way that they should. But I was probably also at that time a little bit too caught up on being a Kubrick fan way more than a Spielberg fan
1: and feeling
2: like, yeah, he was pulling, (laughs) he was pulling it towards Spielberg when I wanted it to be more Kubrick.
1: Yeah. There's a weird thing about that movie. You do get an instinct. I understand that where it's like in certain portions, you feel like I'm supposed to choose, you know, I've got to, and really until you kind of resolve that within yourself um, and realize that the movie doesn't have that tension really deep within it, I think you can appreciate it a little bit more.
2: We can't wait to hear your thoughts on the Spielberg decades and Jaws, and maybe you have a good idea for another power ranking we should do at some point here in the near future. You can email us always at feedback at
1: filmspotting.net. That is this week's show, Josh. Indeed it is. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. You know, all you... Children of the 1990s who love Jurassic Park, Adam is at FilmSpotting. Over at the show (laughs) archives uh, at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives. That goes all the way back to 2005. And at FilmSpotting.net, you can vote in our current poll. We're asking, what is the best film of the year so far? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter.
2: Out on VOD this weekend, 7500, Joseph Gordon-Levitt starring as a pilot whose plane is hijacked by terrorists. Baby Teeth, one I'm curious about, starring Ben Mendelsohn and S.C. Davis. Miss Juneteenth, the directorial debut from Channing Godfrey Peoples. And You Should Have Left, this is a new horror film from Blumhouse starring Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. It's directed by David Kep, the writer of, among many others, Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, The Lost World, and War of the Worlds. In two weeks here on the show... We'll come back refreshed and ready to reckon with Inception, the next film. According to Josh, it's going to be Inception, not Interstellar, in our Nolan Oeuvre review. And we will get to what we think are the top five films of the year so far. It's good that we have a little bit of a break so we can maybe do some homework
1: and watch some films we haven't seen yet from this year. That's the plan. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Deseaux and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week comes from Chicago's Wyatt Waddell. More information is at WyattWaddell.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
2: Film is listener-supported.